Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. Legend. Quite the nickname. And on this, the debut episode of Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to look back on the career of the man who still goes by the nickname legend, Billy Cat. The Heisman Trophy winning halfback from LSU, an AFL star for the Houston Oilers and Oakland Raiders. And while he might be a forgotten hero to many of us, in Baton Rouge, when you say legend, there's only one, Billy Cat. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Joining me today on Sports Forgotten Heroes will be Charles DeGravel, author of Billy Cannon, A Long, Long Run. It's a terrific biography on the life of Billy Cannon. And Jim Weathersby from the thesportshistorian.com. Jim is an expert on SEC football and more. Not only will we take a look back at the all-pro career of Billy Cannon, we'll also look back at how his pre-college days shaped who he would become on and off the field his life after his playing days were over, and how someone who had so much fell so hard and rebounded to once again become a pillar of his community. The story of Billy Cannon has so many twists and turns, I've split the podcast into two parts, and today we'll focus through his playing days at LSU, while part two will concentrate on his life as a professional football player and his life afterwards. You know, Many authors asked Cannon if they could write his biography. He said no to all of them. In fact, Frank DeFord wrote a movie called Everyone's All-American starring Dennis Quaid and Jessica Lange. Many think it is loosely based on Cannon's life. This fictional story came about because, as the story goes, Cannon also turned down Frank DeFord. The person he did not turn down was Charles de Gravel, who was given all access to Billy Cannon. And as I mentioned earlier, he wrote a terrific biography called Billy Cannon, A Long, Long Run. And he's up first on this edition of Sports Forgotten Heroes. Here now, Billy Cannon, part one. Charles, welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. It's good to be with you, Warren. Thank you so much. So why did Billy Cannon agree to let you write his story? Uh, it was one unlikely part of a lot of unlikely um, pieces of, of the story. Um, I have been a prison minister at Angola Prison for over 25 years uh, and have been a writer, for a professional writer, for, for many years as well. But uh, I didn't meet Billy in the context of a writer. Uh, I met him first uh, just because he's a dentist at a prison, and uh, we just happened to cross paths. Well, when someone finally prevailed on him uh, to tell his story, uh, and, and as you mentioned, he repeatedly turned uh, you know, notable writers down, 
he came to me and asked me if I would tell the story. And uh, I think it really was a matter of trust. I didn't know him well at that point, but he knew uh, that it was going to be hard to shock me. And there are some some um, things in the story that were difficult, I think, for him to talk about. But sure. Um, sure. As, as we as we got to be friends uh, and, and as we built up a relationship of trust, he, he was willing to broach those subjects. In all that time you spent with him, what surprised you most? Well, uh, as I said, I had only met him and knew him the way that most people uh, know him, and that is that he was a great football star. Uh, I was surprised, first of all, by how very smart he is, mm-hmm. and secondly, by what an amazing sense of humor he yeah. has. And uh, so we we spent many, many hours, uh, and lots of those hours for me were spent laughing at his one-liners. Just a very bright, intelligent man, good-hearted man, uh, who was also had a very adventurous spirit and was willing to go off the beaten track in some different ways. But uh, I didn't know he's going to be so smart and funny. (laughs) Where do you think uh, Billy's athletic talent came from? How did he develop that talent? He had a father who was a natural athlete, um, and and Billy's older brother, Harvey, was very athletic, played football, ran track, threw the discus. They were naturals. Um, and, And once Billy took that natural ability and put on the muscle, he just left the ordinarily good ranks and went into the extraordinarily good ranks. Uh, so he was just a natural athlete that, that came along at the right time when weightlifting was just at its inception uh, in, in football. Before that, uh, it, the, the common knowledge was, uh, the common wisdom was that, that weights were not good for athletes uh, other than bodybuilders because they slowed you down and they tightened you up. The, uh, it turned out not to be true, and Billy was right on the cusp of that weightlifting thing. And so when, when they got their first set of weights at Estruma High School and spent the summer working out, they came out that next year and just beat everybody hands down. And he enjoyed he enjoyed weightlifting. Yeah, he did. Uh, and he, he enjoyed weightlifting throughout his uh, high school, college, and professional career. And of course, by the time he, after 11 years in uh, in the pros, by that time, uh, weightlifting was a, a normal part of football at any level. You know, I guess it all started in high school, where he led Estruma High to the state championship in 1955, and it was quite the year. He scored 39 touchdowns, set the state record with 229 points while playing running back, safety, and he also returned kicks. Billy also played baseball, basketball, and was a great sprinter, too. In fact, he set the state record in the 100-yard dash, 9.6 seconds, and he also set the state record in the shot put by tossing it over 56 feet. But those numbers are only part of the story. He flat-out dominated. Tell us about his high school career and maybe how repeating the eighth grade actually played such a crucial role in his development as a student and as an athlete. Well, at, at one point, you know, he was a remarkable athlete, and um, he uh, he didn't really turn the corner as an athlete until his uh, junior year, the summer of his junior year. He put on some, some needed bulk, 
and he became what what one sports writer called uh, either the fastest uh, shot putter in the world or the the strongest sprinter, one of the two, <laughs> or both. Uh, but he was uh, a remarkable athlete, and uh, he was a, a high school All-American. And when he went to the uh, uh, All-American game in Tennessee that, that year, his senior year, he was the most valuable player. So he, w- he was arguably the best uh, running back and, and football player, really, because in those days they played defense and offense together. And he was a fabulous uh, defensive back. So he was just a great, great athlete. But, um, yeah, he was uh, very much of a rebel in spirit. One time I called him um, uh, sort of a James Dean type, and he said, yeah, James Dean in a, in a, a slow car. <laughs> um, he grew up poor, and um, at, during his uh, eighth grade year, he, uh, he, he decided he wanted to hang around with a friend and drive motorcycles and not go to school, and uh, he had to make up that year. And... Um, but, uh, of course, with his intelligence and sort of a renewed uh, sense of purpose, going back to school, he did it and was an outstanding student. You said he was uh, he had that uh, uh, that James Dean type personality, I guess, or he was a little adventurous and it sort of got him a little into trouble a little bit with the law, wouldn't you say? Oh, very much so. He was, uh, uh, again, the, the summer before his senior year, uh, he was uh, no, no way to kind of, uh, you know, just beat around the bush. He, he and a bunch of friends were uh, mugging people, essentially. They were waiting for men uh, who were coming out of houses of prostitution uh, and robbing them. Uh, these men were in a compromising position, and in most of the cases, they were willing to give up their money and their valuables to this group of kids uh, without a fight. But if it came to it, Billy and his friends would beat him up. He was He was not a not a good guy, um, but you know, a very complicated person. He was also very popular at school. Uh, the girls loved him. He was big, handsome, strong, um, and uh, he could also be the most charming guy in the world. But when he looks back at those, you know, those uh, those periods of his life where he was going in the wrong direction, um, he feels terrible about him. Wishes he could undo him. But it's just uh, there's a there's a dark streak in his personality. How did he change? What prompted him to take the straight path? Let's say. Well, you know, it's a funny thing, uh, Warren. Um, even as a grown man, uh, he was tempted off of the the straight and narrow. He had been raised by church going folks. Uh, his dad and mom were both strict disciplinarians. Um, he turned out to be a, a great student, both in high school and, and college. And yet, when he got into financial trouble um, after his pro career was done, and he was, uh, you know, had a lucrative career as an orthodontist, but he had overextended himself in real estate. And uh, once more, he was tempted to break the law, and he gave into that temptation. And Billy Cannon doesn't do anything in a small way. <laughs> he ended up counterfeiting. $6 million in $100 bills, and wow. at the time it was uh, perhaps the greatest uh, counterfeiting scheme uh, up, up until that time. Um, and uh, the Secret Service caught up with him, and characteristic of Billy Cannon, he was immediately repentant. He cooperated with the Secret Service. He did his time, 
um, without whining about it. And uh, he came back and, and really had to struggle to rebuild a career. So his high school career, we're, we're going to get back to what happened after his football career. But his high school career was certainly stellar. Uh, like you said, he was an All-American. And as one would expect, he caught the eyes of several colleges. He was recruited by LSU, Florida, Ole Miss, Alabama, Texas. But the one guy whom he wanted to play for, at least the one guy who he had hoped would recruit him, was Bear Bryant. But that never happened. Why? Well, Bear never um, sent him a letter. And uh, he believes, Billy believes, that it was because uh, of his reputation uh, that, that certain coaches, Billy you know, says, were both courting him and bad-mouthing him at the same time. And uh, he really would have loved to play for Bear Bryant, and uh, uh, he just didn't get the chance. Um, he he believes that you know his his bad reputation ruined his chances with, with uh, the Bear. In fact, Billy was recruited by all the best schools, and he came very close to signing with Florida. But in the end, much to the delight of his mother, he decided to stay home and sign with LSU. And joining me now to talk about Billy's early days at LSU is Jim Weathersby from thesportshistorian.com. Jim, welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. Well, glad to be here, Warren. I think it's going to be uh, an exciting time. Looking forward to it. His career at LSU was the stuff of legend. First, he led the freshman team to a 3-0 record, and with the varsity squad not being so competitive when Billy first arrived, the LSU coaching staff really took notice of that freshman squad, and they worked a lot with them. How unusual was it? How unusual was it for a coaching staff, a varsity coaching staff, to work with a freshman team? And how long was it before the coaching staff realized it really had something special in Billy Cannon? Yeah, the uh, back then the NCAA uh, designated that the freshmen couldn't play um, uh, on the varsity team. And Paul Dietzel, the head coach of LSU at the time, was under a lot of pressure to produce a winner. He had had three basically lackluster seasons. And uh, he went out and signed 40, uh, over 40, about 42, I think, freshmen, including Billy Cannon, for that, uh, that freshman team. And so he had a lot of star-studded players, and he knew they were going to be good. And uh, the, the varsity team got off to an 0-3 start. And the freshman team had just beaten the Ole Miss freshman team 44-20, to led by Billy Cannon. And so the coaches decided the Monday after uh, they lost to Georgia Tech, that was their third loss of the season, that they were going to start to coach the, the freshman team, which was highly unusual because the freshman team was led by an assistant coach and some younger, maybe graduate assistants. And so it was highly unusual for the varsity coaching staff to do anything with the, the freshmen during the regular season. But Dietzel knew that this is where his bread and butter was going to be over the next couple of years. And they had guys like Billy Cannon and Warren Rabb and Johnny Robinson and, and Don Purvis, all you know, great players from the, the Baton Rouge, Louisiana area, uh, area and Purvis was from near, nearby uh, the Crystal Lakes, Mississippi. So he knew they had the talent, and they wanted to start to work, wanted to start working with them as soon as possible to get them into the the system that they were going to be running once they they, they got into the the varsity uh, the next season. And we can we can talk about what happened. Um, 
the fifty uh, the fifty seventh season and, and, and beyond. But it, it basically to answer your question. It was highly unusual for for the, co- the varsity coaching staff to, to to be working with the freshmen. And he knew right off the bat that Cannon was was basically uh, a, a young stud. That the guy had unbelievable speed. He could cut on a dime, and, and, and he was extremely powerful and strong. Um, as for a freshman, I mean, Dietzel knew and the coaching staff knew early on that Cannon was going to be uh, something special. Before we get totally immersed in Cannon's career on the field at LSU, now would be a great time to explore what Cannon was like off the field at LSU. And the fact that Cannon got married during his freshman year. Once again, here's DeGravel. He met his wife in high school. They were, they were friends and... Uh... She was an, an outstanding athlete in her own right. She was uh, a two-time All-America, I'm sorry, All-State basketball player. And um, she was also uh, very witty and had a lot of spunk and energy, kind of like Billy. And um, and she helped him through his typing class. Hmm. He, he was good at everything but typing. And uh, his, his wife, Dorothy, whom he calls Dot, uh, helped him through that. They got married their freshman year at LSU, and so he lived only a short time in the dorms. Um, after their marriage, he had an off-campus site and was, was paid uh, some kind of allowance, uh, which they did for marriage students in those days. Um, so he didn't do a lot of uh, sort of gallivanting with his uh, teammates, um, but he was known for selling tickets. Uh, to to the ball game, and uh, he wasn't really scalping the tickets, but he was getting them at a at a um, premium price, and then selling them for their face value before the games. He did this throughout high school for college games and high school games, and that was pocket change for Billy. And always, always uh, was a was a hustler. Um, and then and when he started doing this, when he got to LSU as a freshman, uh, they called him in and said, said, you can't do this anymore. You're a star player. We can't have you out selling tickets uh, before the football games. But, uh, yeah, he was pr- very much of a family man. They continued to have children throughout the years, uh, ended up with five kids, and very much of a social guy. And his, uh, his teammate, he was always very deferential to his teammates and, and gave them lots of credit um, uh, and they were. They were a great team. Do you think that the fact that he met his met his wife in high school, got married uh, soon after entering college, that that actually helped him a lot because he could have gone in another direction? Uh, that's a very good question, Warren, and I'm, I'm thinking through it as we talk. Um, I think it would keep uh, a guy like Billy who um, – has a tendency to, to wander off the beaten track, uh, it, it might keep him more focused. And uh, he was he, he loved his family, and, uh, uh, you know, ne- next to football, that was, his, uh, uh, that was his primary responsibility and concern. And uh, Doc was there at every football game um, throughout his professional career as well. And uh, his mom and dad, Billy's mom and dad, were at every game that they could make uh, – almost regardless of where it was played. So, off the field, things were going pretty well. Billy and Dot were happily married, and Coach Dietzel helped many of his players get jobs during the summer. And, as one might expect, 
after you take a look back at the entire Billy Cannon story, it shouldn't come as a surprise that one of Billy's jobs actually had him involved, from a distance, with a very interesting character. <laughs> yeah, that's, a, you know, another, another piece of this just fascinating story is that one of Billy's jobs in college was to work with the local boss of the AFL-CIO, a guy named Edward Grady Parton. And Billy, because his dad was a blue-collar worker, just had a natural uh, sympathy for the unions. And uh, and working for Parton uh, a couple of summers in a row, he really became a union man and a union sympathizer. And, of course, Edward Grady Parton's boss was Jimmy Hoffa, a notorious, and the AFL-CIO itself was just really shady bunch of folks that were doing all kind of bad stuff, and both Parton uh, and Hoffa served time, and, of course, Hoffa <laughs> disappeared, and we still don't know where he is. So another sort of element of, um, of Billy's life that's, that's off the uh, beaten path. Back on the field, freshman year in the rearview mirror, Billy Cannon and LSU were about to embark on an incredible three-year run. And the stage for it all was set during a 5-5 five and five season in 1957. Here's Jim Weathersby. Yeah, 57, these young studs became sophomores and they were eligible to play for the first time on the varsity. And the record, as you said, wasn't all that great. They were 5-5, five and five, but the five losses were fairly close. I think the worst loss, they lost by eight points um, to Florida. But uh, they went five and five, and they beat Alabama twenty-eight to nothing. This was the year before Paul Bryant uh, came from uh, Texas A&M to start coaching uh, at Alabama. So Alabama wasn't all that good, but still five and five. It was a marked improvement over the last four or five years. So things were looking up, and Billy was a a key part of that uh, as a halfback and, and gaining yardage and kickoff returns, punt returns. Um, and he also played a little defensive back and, and linebacker. So these guys are starting to uh, to make their name. And, uh, yeah, Jimmy Taylor was, was still on that team. And, um, um, you know, he would go on to great things, the Green Bay Packers, become a pro football Hall of Famer. But it was Billy and Warren Robb and some of these other guys, Johnny Robinson, who uh, really got the ball rolling. And they set the foundation in that sophomore uh, 57 season and 1958 is really when billy cannon exploded on the scene and became a uh, national name he led the tigers to a uh, national championship that year as well what stands out to you about that 1958 season and billy cannon's contribution yeah that was a magical year and and basically dietzel and the set staff set the tone early in 58 right around spring practice when they decided to implement something called the the wing T formation. And basically, to, to kind of give you a visual, the wing T would have a halfback and fullback behind the quarterback and another halfback that would launch himself behind one of the ends. What this did was allow for more passing, for reverses, for counters, for a lot of uh, speed and trickery that, that basically LSU had. They had some great running backs, a bevy of running backs. They lost some offensive linemen off the 57 team, and SEC prognosticators thought LSU would finish no better than maybe midway in the SEC. But uh, they were lifting weights. 
uh, as a team. And again, that was unusual for that time period. And, uh, you know, Billy was a key part of, uh, of the season. So they started out, interestingly enough, against Rice in Houston with Alabama coming up next in Mobile. And Dietzel decided not to really use that wing T formation in the Rice game because he knew they could beat him without him. And, he did, and Paul Bryant was scouting the game, and they knew that they probably didn't want to show the Bear too much going into the Alabama game. So they, they ended up taking care of Rice, and they played Alabama and Mobile. And uh, the first half of the game, Billy was a little upset because they still really haven't used the, the wing T to that point. And Alabama took a 3 to nothing halftime lead. Well, beginning of the second half, uh, Diesel decided to unveil that wing T, and LSU came roaring back for a 13-3 to victory, and Billy was part of that. He scored a touchdown. And um, Paul Bryant was seen on the sidelines <laughs> demanding of his assistance as to why in the world uh, they didn't know what LSU was running at the time, that wing T. So the season wore on, and each game, you know, Billy was either – Scoring a touchdown via running or returning punts or kickoffs for touchdowns, making good plays defensively. And the young Tigers started to grow up pretty quickly. And uh, each game they got better and better and better. Was it the 58 season where Dietzel basically had three different offenses? Like, um, yeah. He, he, yeah. So Cannon could have had... Cannon could have had even a bigger season had he been the quote-unquote right. featured back. That's right. There was an NCAA rule at the time that said that you, you couldn't uh, insert a player more than two times in one quarter. And uh, the, 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 apparently the, the, the uh, advocacy behind the rule was to, to force teams to have players play both offense and defense. Well, Dietzel came up with a plan that uh, to rest these players and, and to not run afoul of the of the rule to implement three platoons. And his first one was the, the white team that basically comprised of the first teamers. And Billy was, you know, of course, first team halfback and also played defensive back on defense. Then he had a second group called, it started out as the goal team, but the sports writer called it the go team and that stuck. And that was basically the, uh, the second string offense. And then he had something called the Chinese bandits. That was the third team. I'm um, excuse me, the, the, the second team defense. And so what happened was during a game, um, the white team would start out the quarter and then midway through, based on the circumstances, Diesel would implement either the, the go team or the Chinese bandit team and then bring back the, the uh, white team at the end of the quarter. Well, what this did was um, allow for, for depth. It kept uh, the, the players fresh. It also kept them during the season committed to learning the game plans and kept the team morale high because everyone knew they were going to play. Well, this was, ended up being a brilliant strategy for Dietzel because basically the LSU would wear opponents down as the season wore on. And, and, and you're right, Cannon uh, amassed quite a, some, some excellent statistics um, over the season. But obviously, if he had played more, he would have had more more yardage, more touchdowns, and everything else. So, uh, yes, you're right. That platoon system, three uh, platoon system that uh, Diesel implemented did kind of uh, keep Cannon's numbers down. But it was a great 58 season, and, um, you know, they, they took care of, like I said, Alabama. They knocked off Harden-Simmons, which was coached by Sammy Ball, who, uh, you know, the famous quarterback from TCU and the Washington Redskins. Yep. And they went on to, to to play Miami down in Miami, and 
they weren't really LSU was just starting to make their way up the polls. The AP and the UPI polls were the big polls at that time, and they drubbed Miami forty-one to nothing. It was Miami's worst loss in fifteen years, and uh, LSU at that point had moved up to number nine in the polls in both the AP and UPI. Uh, the following week, they routed Kentucky thirty-two to seven. LSU moved up the polls again. They were number five in the UPI, number three in the AP. And then the sixth game was against Florida, who was had an excellent program there, and LSU hadn't beaten them in a few years. So Billy scored from one yard out, and uh, LSU hung on to beat Florida 10-7. to After that game, the AP uh, put LSU at number one, and the UPI still had them number five. Finally, in game seven, they met their, uh, their big rival, University of Mississippi, or Ole Miss Rebels, caught, coached by College Hall of Football, Famer um, Johnny Vaught, and uh, it was it was a, a hell bent game. But both uh, fan bases were telling the other to go to hell. And Ole Miss had actually hired a an airplane to drop leaflets onto the LSU campus that basically read "Go to hell, LSU." So it was a little testy. Um, but but you know Billy played well, and um, he didn't do a whole lot offensively, but he made a huge play on the. Chuck Flowers, Charlie Flowers, who was a, a Ole Miss star at the time, on a fourth down uh, run at the, at the LSU one-yard line to keep out Ole Miss from scoring. LSU was able to tack on a couple of touchdowns and won the game 14 to nothing, which was a huge win. And that caught the attention uh, of the pollsters. And so uh, Ole Miss at the time was number six. After that game, LSU was number one in both polls. Uh, they went on in the eighth game, routed uh, Duke 50 to 18, and closed out the season um, playing Mississippi State and Jackson in a monsoon rainstorm. That uh, LSU hung on seven to six. Uh, poor Billy Cannon at that point hit one of his worst games that year. He fumbled a couple of times, but uh, uh, he did uh, help LSU win by knocking a potential uh, touchdown pass down in the end zone that would have given Mississippi State the lead. So. LSU was 9-0 and going into their final regular season game against their rival Tulane, and um, <laughs> LSU decimated the Green Wave in that last game, 62 to nothing. After that, <clears throat> they uh, earned a Sugar Bowl invitation uh, against an unranked 8-2 and Clemson team. I don't know how Clemson got that invitation, but LSU ended up winning the game, 7 to nothing, and uh, – Billy Cannon was responsible for the victory. He is a halfback. He threw a halfback pass to uh, Mickey Mangum for the only score of the game, and LSU won, like I said, seven to nothing. And both the UPI and the AP anointed the Tigers the number one team in the land. So, uh, 1958 for the LSU program for Billy Cannon and his and all his Tiger buddies. So, he really set himself up on the national stage in '58. He did. And I, yeah, I was going to tell you some of his accolades that year. He sure. First team All American, uh, Player of the Year by the UPI, the Sporting News, and the Touchdown Club of Columbus. He was All SEC. He was voted SEC MVP for the Nashville Banner. He led the SEC in rushing yards, averaging TDs. He finished third in the Heisman voting that year behind uh, Pete Dawkins of Army, who won it, and Randy Duncan of Iowa, who finished second. So, yes. Uh, Cannon had vaulted himself uh, into the national spotlight uh, with, uh, with with the way he helped the, the LSU team win the national championship. To some, his nickname was Legend, 
And in 59, I think, is probably where he really solidified that nickname. LSU didn't repeat as national champions, but that was the year that Billy Cannon won the Heisman Trophy. He led the team in rushing, scoring, and against Ole Miss on Halloween night, he scored a touchdown on one of the greatest returns, punt returns, in the history of LSU. Was the 59 season a success or was it a disappointment? Tell me about 59 and obviously the season that Billy Cannon had. Well, LSU's coming off the national championship year of 58, so the targets were on their backs. Paul Dietzel decided to be conservative for that season. As Billy put it, uh, once they got up two touchdowns on anybody, Dietzel just shut the team down. They didn't run a lot of a wing tee like they did the previous season. But they were winning. They won. They they, they started out six and zero. They outscored their opponents, one hundred and three to six. So they were dominating. Uh, and then they ran up. Yeah, they were. They were. They were still winning, even though they were playing conservative conservative football. And so, you know, things were going along swimmingly. Um, and then um, game seven came up, and that was on Halloween. Um, in Tiger Stadium at night, and um, they're playing again. They're their arch rival at the time, the Ole Miss Rebels, and Ole Miss had another great team and uh, actually had a lead in that game, three to nothing, into the fourth quarter. Well, interestingly, Paul Dietzel had a rule uh, with all of his kick returners that if a ball was kicked um, inside the 15-yard line, the rule was to let it go, let it bounce in the end zone, and get the ball out on the 20 at the time. Well, Billy always a winner, always determined to, to find a way to win, fielded a punt, and it was on the 11-yard line, and he proceeded to break seven tackles and go down the field for an 89-yard touchdown that gave LSU the 7-3 to lead. And that's when the, his nickname, I think, the legend came about. Well, he what, what people don't remember, or a lot of people don't remember about that game, is that Billy – uh, basically saved the game. Ole Miss had enough time to take the ball down the field, and they got down to the two-yard line, and LSU stopped them three times, and Billy and Warren Robb, uh, Rab, excuse me, um, made the stop on the Ole Miss quarterback, Doug Elmore, in fourth and one with 18 seconds left that uh, sealed the victory for Ole Miss. So, I mean, excuse me, for LSU. So, Billy's, you know, electrifying run and his defensive gym, you know, saved the day for the Tigers. And so they were they were seven and up and, you know, on their way potentially to back to back national championships. Well, the next week they had to go to Knoxville, Tennessee to play the University of Tennessee Volunteers. And uh, Billy said they'd had a great week of practice. They were ready to play. It's a perfect day. It was a little chilly, but good day for football. And LSU jumped out to seven to nothing lead. They carried into the, the third quarter, and then uh, Rab threw a pick six, and Tennessee tied the game up. And two minutes later, Tennessee scored again to go up fourteen to seven. Well, luckily for LSU, Tennessee had a horrendous fumble at their own two-yard line in the fourth quarter, and uh, LSU recovered and scored the touchdown to pull within fourteen to thirteen. So Dietzel immediately ran Billy in to try to convert the two points for, for the lead and possibly uh, the win. And as he put it, everybody in the stadium, whether they understood football or not, knew it was going to be um, off tackle to the right side. And that, that was the play. Billy ran it. 
and he drove hard, and the referee said that the Tennessee team stopped Cannon short of the goal line, but um, Cannon still today will swear to you that he scored, and that would have given LSU the lead and possibly the win, but uh, as it turned out, Tennessee won the game 14-13, to and that was LSU's first loss in two years, and basically the air kind of went out of the balloon at that point. Um, they finished the season um, beating Mississippi State and Tulane, and the Sugar Bowl came back and uh, invited them to play Ole Miss, uh, kind, of, kind of a return match, and the players just didn't want to play Ole Miss. They wanted to go to another bowl, but there was no other invitation. And Basically, the LSU administ- administration strong-armed the team to play Ole Miss in that bowl game, and Ole Miss got a measure of revenge, winning 21 to nothing. And um, later on in, a, in, a, in his book, Paul Dietzel said he regrets um, the team playing Ole Miss in that game, knowing that they really, you know, mentally just weren't ready to play and, and, and they lost the game. But again, you know, Billy had a hell of a year and, you know, he won the Heisman in 59, as you said. And I'm sure some of that had to do with that 58 season. But uh, he, he was everything again in 59 that he was in 58. I mean, um, you know, he was All-American again. He uh, SEC Player of the Year again, led the, led the, you know, the league in, in a lot of different statistics. Um, but, um, you know, what, I think if you ask Billy Cannon, he would say that the, the year was, was not successful, that uh, they didn't win. They had their, their standards, you know, at a high level. They wanted, they wanted to win another national championship, but they didn't. Uh, but, you know, 9-2 and two record is not bad. But they had uh, loftier goals, and so they, they didn't they didn't win uh, the national championship. So from Billy's standpoint, I think he would uh, would state that uh, no, they um, it was not a successful season. Even though boy, he he won all kinds of awards, including the Heisman, as I said, and the Walter Camp Memorial Trophy as the College Football Player of the Year. And, um, you know, he ended the year. Um, um, in the Sugar Bowl, and that was the end of his career at LSU. And uh, but he wasn't—he wasn't finished playing football. Nah, he wasn't done by a long shot. And while LSU fell short of its goal of repeating as national champions, Cannon enjoyed a spectacular season. He rushed for 598 yards and scored six touchdowns. He won the Heisman Trophy despite the fact that LSU did not repeat as national champions. And as one would expect. Cannon was the guy every team in pro football wanted, and with a new league starting up, the American Football League, there was going to be a bidding war. Next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to look back at the controversy surrounding Billy Cannon's entree into professional football, his all-pro career, and his remarkable fall from grace, and his rise afterwards. I want to thank my guests today, Charles DeGravel and Jim Weathersby, and they'll be joining me again on our next podcast, part two of Billy Cannon. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. To learn how you can be a part of Sports Forgotten Heroes, please visit patreon.com backslash sports FH. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com backslash sports FH. You can even find out how to ask a question in a future podcast. Again, that's patreon.com backslash sports FH. You can also find out more about Sports Forgotten Heroes at SportsFH.com and follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter at SportsFH.
Heroes. And you can also follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Facebook as well. Finally, thank you to the podcast crew at Hungry Cliff for all of their support. Tony Solanskis and his crew does a terrific job. Check them out at HungryCliff.com. Thanks again, and see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.